Shalom. This is Reverend John Ferret, and we're now at Genesis Lesson 86 in the series called The Gospel According to Moses, a Torah study for Christians, focusing, in this case, on the book of Genesis. In this Lesson 86, we're going to be looking at the verses in Genesis 37, 26 through 36, and then the first nine verses of 38. Now, the first thing that we have to do in this lesson is we have to finish chapter 37. And really, we're starting where Joseph is sold to the pagans, to the Midianites, Ishmaelites, and taken to Egypt. And we see that Reuben, who is really the firstborn of Israel, the firstborn of Jacob, he actually saves Joseph's life. But it's a little bit later that Judah, he comes in, and we see this in Genesis 37, verses 26 through 27, that Judah says, we should sell our brother. And Judah and the brothers sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Now, one thing I want you to notice is Judah's name in Hebrew is Yehuda. So Yehuda sold Joseph, or Yosef, for 20 pieces of silver. Well, actually, the brothers did. And we have to remember that Joseph is a paradigm. His life is a paradigm. His life is a model. His life is a prototype. Prototype. All these words are synonymous. Even in Jewish literature, we find that Joseph is considered a prototype of the Messiah. In other words, if there's going to be a savior of the world, Joseph is a prototype. He's the model. Take a look at him. And for us, as we look at Joseph, we see Jesus. Now, as I mentioned, Judah was the one that came up with the idea of selling Joseph, and his name is Yehuda. Since Joseph is a model and a prototype of Jesus, we remember that Judas, he basically betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas's Hebrew name is Yehuda. Judas's name is Judah. And so, just like Joseph was sold with the person who came up with the idea, Yehuda, Judah, his brother, for 20 pieces of silver, so too, Messiah Jesus is betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the paradigm continues. The prototype that Joseph is a prototype of the Messiah continues. And there's much more as we take a look at those last verses of Genesis 37. Second of all, in this lesson, we begin studying chapter 38 of Genesis, which is a surprise interruption in the Joseph saga. And now we're faced with the story 
of Judah and Tamar. And we ask, why? What's going on? Why this interruption? What does Judah and Tamar have to do with all this? Now, related to this, I just wanted to let you know that the numbering of chapters and verses in the Bible doesn't start until 13, the 13th century A.D., so prior to the 13th century A.D., there are no chapter numbers or verse numbers. This is completed by the 16th century A.D. In the, in the first printing of the King James Bible. But before this, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, there is no chapter numbering. There is no text numbering. So when we read two specific verses... Genesis 37, verse 36, we read, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And then we go to chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, since there are no chapter numbers and there are no separations this way, it's as if these two verses themselves create a special section of Torah. They're like bookends. One before and one after the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, we don't notice this because our view is clouded because we're looking at chapter 37 and then chapter 38 and then chapter 39. And so those numbers separate this picture from us. So these similar statements in these two verses, they package the Judah and Tamar story. Now, Nahum Sarna, the brilliant scholar who actually wrote the Torah commentary to Genesis in the JPS Torah Commentary, the Jerusalem Publication Society Torah Commentary, which I highly recommend to everybody, he talks about the fact that it's as if the Lord inspired Moses to do this on purpose. Well, of course he did it on purpose. Now, even though the Bible is, is silent as to why this story is here of Judah and Tamar. We have the great Torah scholars like Nahum Sarna in the JPS Torah commentary. They're basically saying this seems to imply that there's great importance that God is telling us about the saga of Judah and Tamar. Now it seems to us like it's a bunny trail a story that's not related to the main saga and it's all like totally disconnected but as we will see it seems that what God is saying this is critically important to the paradigm of Joseph that he is the prototype of the coming Messiah we would say the prototype the model of the Savior of the world now, we're seeing this again and again. I just, just here's an example. Joseph and Jesus, their names in the English both start with J. In the Hebrew, they both start with the Yod, Yosef and Yeshua. 
Both had miracle births. You read about this. Rachel, and as we read in Genesis 29:39, was barren. The Hebrew word is achar, Strong's number 6135, which means she was infertile. She couldn't have children. But God opened her womb. So Joseph had a miracle birth and Jesus had a miracle birth. Now, in the saga of Joseph, we read about Joseph and his father Jacob. What's fascinating is when we take a look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And we find that Jesus had an earthly father by the name of Joseph. And his earthly father had his father named Jacob. This is amazing. It's as if the Lord is trying to connect Jesus and his birth to Joseph on purpose. So as Christians celebrate Christmas, there's a deeper aspect here to the birth of Messiah. They were both saviors of the world. Joseph, he saved the world with the bread of earth. Jesus, he saved the world through himself as he was the bread from heaven. As he states in John chapter 6, verse 41. This is, this is awesome. This is powerful. So are you ready? Now let's begin our own study of these truly amazing verses. So we have Joseph is sold. Judah is the key instigator here. And he's sold to the pagans who take him to uh, a pagan nation for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus, same thing, is sold for 30 pieces of silver. And he wasn't killed. He was taken out of the ground. And matter of fact, there's an interesting... Yeah, here's the interesting statement. I want to go back to this because Elahan ben Avraham in his book, Mashiach ben Yosef, goes into it a little bit deeper. So I want to add to this. And he says this. Here we have a picture of Yehuda, one of the 12, suggesting the selling of their brother for monetary gain. Even as Yehuda ish Skiriot, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 Talmudim disciples of Yeshua, sold him to the religious authorities. In both cases, this led, this led them to being turned over to the Gentiles. Joseph is turned over to the Egyptians. Jesus is turned over to the Romans. The Romans crucified Jesus. The Jews didn't. So we'll leave it as that. And a third connection. And we'll end off with this one. And finally end off 37. I'm going to read the rest of Genesis 37. Starting in verse 29. And we read, And Reuben returned to the pit. Behold, Yosef was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The child is not, and I, where shall I go? And they took Yosef's coat and killed a kid for the goats. Let me just stop here for a while. Um, something's very important here. The word kid. That's Hebrew for a female goat. Okay? 
You can buy a female goat in Israel 3,900 years ago for a penny. I mean, they were a dime a dozen. Are you kidding? They were giving them away. This is like nothing, okay? A male goat, a ram, okay, that is more important, okay? Because a ram can impregnate a lot of women, okay? And that's what they did. So the male is always much more valuable, okay, in a herd. So I just want to let you know a kid, a really cheap goat because it's a female. So um, they took Yosef's, uh, Yosef's coat and killed the kid of the goats and dipped the coat. And why, do you understand why they killed a kid? Why kill a ram? This is cheap, okay? This will save some money here, okay? All we need is blood. We don't care if it's the blood of a male goat or a female goat. Let's do a female. This is so realistic because you take a look at this. This makes a lot of sense. I would have done the same thing. But I'm not trying to kill my brother or whatever. So anyway, um, and they sent the coat with long sleeves and they brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat. And he knew it and said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast has devoured him. Yosef is without doubt torn in pieces. And Yaakov rent his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down to my son mourning into Sheol. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianim sold to him to Mitzrayim. The Midianites sold him to the Egyptians to Potiphar, uh, Pharaoh's chamberlain, a captain of the guard. So that's the end of 37. So, again, Joseph is thought to be killed by Jacob. Uh, he's not. So the father thinks that he's killed and said to be killed by beast. And notice what Jacob does. He rends his garment. All right. When you actually, again, going into Dr. Kareed, and I want to read Kareed's statements on here or the JPS Torah commentary. In the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, in the ancient Near East, when somebody rends their garment, this is a demonstration, okay, of a severe emotion. And a father would do it. Many people would do it. It's, it's, it's a, um, a demonstration of anger or sorrow, okay, but extreme emotion. And in Matthew 27, 51, the father sees his son die and the curtain of the Holy of Holies of the temple is torn in two. Jewish Christians say, yes, one meaning can be we now have access to the Holy of Holies. Fine. However, God is sorrowful, angry, deeply showing, okay, the terrible cost that he had to pay for us. It's... And they say that's more related to it. The terrible price got paid for you and me. So we come to the end of 37 and we're beginning this journey all the way to the end, all the way to Genesis chapter 50. And we're beginning to see the beginning nature and already it's awesome, okay? The beginning nature of this paradigm. Yosef or Yosef in Hebrew, the savior of the world, with the bread of the earth. And Yeshua, the Savior of the world, with the bread of heaven.
was, didn't the high priest also rent his garments? Yes. And obviously that was for the purpose of anger. He wasn't sad. There was no sorrow. But again, you can see that. It's a classic example. So we've got two. But the key one is the father, okay, and the temple. And then the Torah changes. Out of nowhere, we have to read about Judah, uh, Judah and Tamar. This is an unexpected interruption. Here we go again. And I have to say that indeed, I thank God for Dennis Prager. Uh, he has helped me so much. Uh, especially Dennis will always tell me uh, the different references that he uses and be able to go into this deeper. The JPS Torah commentary, I knew about that long ago, but he said how important it is even for Christians to have this commentary. And he said, it is a question, why is this all of a sudden, you start Joseph, we're really into it, and then boom, okay, we come into the story and the events of Judah and Tamar, and it seems totally unconnected. So we ask the questions, why? Why is this put in? What's this doing here? Now, by the way, the Torah does not give us an answer and never will. So, But there's some ideas here, some strong ideas that when we take a look at it, to see the purposes behind this. Now, we were just getting into the paradigm between Joseph and Jesus. And then we say, now what? Well, let's start with Sarna and the JPS Torah commentary so he can help us as we begin this. So, here's his introduction to chapter 38. The story of Joseph's fortunes is abruptly interrupted. I agree. <laughs> what did you do this for, God? By a narrative about Judah that seems to be entirely unconnected to what precedes and follows it. Judah separates himself from his brothers, marries, and has three sons. In time, he finds a wife for his firstborn son. She dies childless soon after his marriage. The second son refuses to follow what was then the common procedure and marry his dead brother's wife. Then he too dies. When the widow Tamar realizes that her claim for a husband is unlikely to be satisfied, even though the third son of Judah, um, e even through the third son of Judah, she deceives her father-in-law. Oblivious to her identity, Judah is intimate with her. Tamar gives birth to twins. So that's kind of the thumbnail review of 38. And here's his statement. This digression heightens the reader's suspense at a critical moment in the Joseph narrative. But the skillful blending of the chapter, this is, I want to mention this, the skillful blending of this chapter, what's interesting is, if you ever went to an opera, an opera, obviously, lots of music, color, sets, it's a play, okay? The story of Judah and Tamar is one act of the opera. It's part of the opera. I get it now. I get what he means here. You'll have to see what I mean in just a little bit. A skillful blending of the chapter into the larger story. In other words, it's a chapter of an opera. And shows that the digression is deliberate. This digression is deliberate. 
and the result of careful literary design. Now, the reason why we can say that, the last verse of chapter 37 says, Joseph was sold in Egypt as a slave. Okay, then 38. The first verse of 39, after we're done with Judah and tomorrow, is Joseph was sold as a slave. Bookends. That's done on purpose to say this is important. What's going on? We're going to dive in, take a look at this. Genesis 38, 1 through 12. I'll read those 12 verses, and then we'll dive into comments on parts of it. So in Genesis 38, starting in verse 1, And it came to pass at that time that Yehuda went down from his brothers and turned into a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. Now what that means is, typical phrase, Hira lived in a city called Adulam. Okay? That's what it basically means. You can visit Adulam today. The ruins of Adulam and the cave of Adulam is in Israel. And Yehuda saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her, and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. And she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bore a son and called his name Shelah. And uh, he was at Kisiv when she bore him. And Yehuda took a wife for Er, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Er, Yehuda's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Yehuda said to Onan, Go in to thy brother's wife and perform the duty of her brother, uh, brother-in-law, and raise up seed for thy brother. And Onan uh, knew that the seed would not be his, and it came to pass when he went in to his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, so he slew him also. Then said Yehuda to Tamar, his uh, daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's home till Shelah my son be grown. For he said, Lest perchance he die also, as his brothers did. And Tamar went and dealt uh, in his father's house. It's very interesting. I mean, uh, I don't think he want. He's a little scared. Okay. First of all, that Tamar marries heir. He's killed. Then Onan, he's killed. And he, you, you begin to wonder if, if Yehuda's kind of, Judah's kind of saying, I don't want to give Sheila to him. I'm not going to have any sons left. What's wrong with this girl, okay? And I, it's not there, but you just wonder if that's what he's thinking. Uh, for she saw that Sheila was, uh, anyway. Uh, so, uh, and in the process of time, the daughter of Shua's wife died, and then Yehuda was comforted. He went up to, to his sheep shears to Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. So we'll stop there. Judah leaves his family. This is the last time the brothers were all together. They tried to kill Joseph, remember? And then they sold him. And then the real last time, that, from the Torah's point of view, is when they're confronting Jacob with the coat with the blood of the kid. And he leaves. In the ancient Near East, this is an indication that the family's falling apart. This is huge. In chapter 37, verse 14, so if you're listening uh, on the audio or even you guys here tonight in the audience, uh, 37, 14, it says that the family, Jacob, okay, they have less than 70. They don't have 70 yet. Joseph's only 17. Are you with me? 
He's not even ruling yet. We're not even there yet. This family is a small family. Where did they leave? live in Hebron? There's less than 70. Those are the only Hebrews in the world. Maybe there's 50, maybe there's 60. That's it. Plus Judah, who's now in a place called Adullam. Judah leaves and he goes to, goes to the Canaanites. Totally pagan. Now, what's interesting is, it says he went down from his brothers in 38.1. Knowing that the Bible says Jacob and the rest of the families up in Hebron, Hebron is 3,241 feet above sea level. Adullam is 1,100 feet above sea level. He went down. That's exactly what he did. He went from the high country in the mountains, the southern part of the mountains, and he went into the Shephela, and Adullam itself is in a valley. So he went to down 2,000 feet. And Adullam is a Canaanite city. So his friend Hera is a Canaanite. So we have a crisis. And I remember I bumped into, I was watching Ray Vanderland's video one time, and he started talking about a concept that I want to share with you. So I'm going to go to his book. This is from his DVD called Israel's Mission. And this is the uh, book, the discovery guide that goes with it. And many of you who have Ray Vanderland's DVDs, if you don't have the book that goes with it, you're like missing the greatest resource in the world. This is fantastic in terms of all of his resources and so on. But in his book, he talks about in the ancient Middle East, everything or life centered around the extended family or the household, which was called the father's house. Okay, or in Hebrew, Beit Av, the house of the father. Now this is Assyrian, this is Canaanite, everybody. This, this is the ancient world. Such a family could, uh, would comprise 30, 50 or more people, 50 people, 60 people, that's Judah, the Beit Av in Hebron, okay? And Judah leaves the Beit Av. Uh, so he has wives, his younger brothers, unmarried children, married sons with their families. A woman customarily joined the Beit Av of her husband. The patriarch controlled all family resources, using them to protect and care for each family member. Look what Jacob did to Joseph. It seems like he contributed to this. In this setting, the Beit Av was the, con uh, was the context through which each member was connected to the rest of society. This is huge. Judah's leaving. His con I mean, he's basically saying, my life is over. If a member lost connection to the family due to oppression, captured by enemies, poverty, or bad choices, the patriarch was responsible to restore the marginalized member of the to the family. Did J Jacob ever go after Judah? No. Jacob is not a good dad. Okay, he's not a good dad. I mean, but it's, isn't it interesting that God is using weak people, people with flaws like us, to do what? To go and make disciples. This is us. This is a this is a real story about real people. Okay, and look at J Judah. He's had it. So he's leaving. Anyone who found himself or herself without a Beit Hav was in serious trouble. Now, not only is this comments by Ray Vanderland, but I found this in the Jewish Virtual Library. org. So, I mean, there's tons of resources on Beit Av. Okay, it's the patriarchal society, but it's not just the Hebrews.
So, again, the Beit Av of Yaakov, Jacob, is falling. Jacob is a bad dad. He's not, okay? He favored Joseph, made that coat for him, okay? And that coat, if you recall, when we started Genesis 37, that basically elevated Joseph above everybody. Then he has those dreams. Um, Jacob doesn't do anything with the hatred of his brothers, doesn't gather the family together, and the dad doesn't go after Judah. This is God's chosen people. He comes to Abraham. Go back to Genesis 12.3. Genesis 12.3, God says to Abraham, and through your seed, all of the nations will be blessed. And those of you might here recall that when we did cover chapter 12, okay, that it says grafted in. All of the nations of the world will be grafted in. And a rabbi called Rabbi Eliezer, who was a contemporary of Paul, discovered the weirdness of that verb. Isn't it interesting that Paul says that we're grafted in? And Eleazar, a contemporary rabbi of his, also found the same thing in the ancient Hebrew. These are God's chosen people. Everything's falling apart. He marries Bat Shua. That's not her name. Okay? Bat is daughter Shua, the daughter of Shua. We don't know what her name is. So she's a daughter of Canaanite, and basically uh, the rabbis say that the, he, there's a Hebrew word that's very related to it as Kenaani merchant. So it could very well be, again, it could be the name of a Canaanite, or it could be the daughter of a merchant, one or the other. It's, but it's not important, but it's interesting. Now, what's interesting is Batshua is a Canaanite. So she's part of this pagan culture, and this, this is a severe break. Why? Jacob is not involved in the marriage of his son to the girl. The Beit Av, this is huge. The father, basically, we know what Jacob's going to, Judah's going to do, what he's going to do for Er. He's going to get a wife for Er. He's creating his own Beit Av. He's really isolated himself completely, and now he's in a pagan culture. So, Judah has three sons. Both by Batshua, the daughter of Shua, Er, Onan, and Shelah. By the way, this is interesting. Dave and I were talking about this before we started. Uh, er, if you spell it in Hebrew backwards, the name is Ra, which means evil. And Er did something evil, despicably evil, and he's killed. That's interesting. You just wonder if there's a play on words there. So Tamar is a wife for Er, and who, who actually finds Tamar for Er? Jacob, Judah, okay? She ain't no Hebrew. She's Canaanite. She's from that area. Remember, 40 miles south in the mountains is a small family, Beit Av of Jacob. That's the only Hebrews on the planet. That's it. 50 of them, 60 maybe. I don't think there's 70 yet. That'd be kind of a fun thing to do, get an estimate how many. It's a small little group. And Judah is 40 miles north in the Shephelah, in a valley at Adullam, surrounded by Canaanites. Now, Er is an evil man, and it's interesting that he was, spell his name backwards, it's Ra, and it means evil. And he does something evil. 
It's unknown. And what's really interesting, it says, the Lord killed him. In Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh killed him. Yahweh, that's God's personal name. And all of a sudden, God shows up. Yahweh kills him. Yahweh, his name, because it, I mean, it's Yahweh. Remember, Lord, every time you read that in your Bible, it's always a cover for God's name. yud heh vav heh Yeah. So God is here. And then you say, wait a minute, the Lord, what are you doing here? What's going on? The story is getting interesting because all of a sudden God appears. God is not letting Judah off the hook. I don't know what's going on, but God shows up. This is awesome. This is why the little nuances in this story make it very important. So it's Yahweh in Hebrew. The God of Abraham is in control. Now, the next thing is, Heirs dies, okay, because he's killed by God for some evil thing that he did. Now, he's a Canaanite. So he, I mean, Canaanite practices were just awful. So his brother has to follow the ancient Near East practice, which is called Leverite marriage. Now, we're going to actually take a look at this. I'm going to go to the Archaeological Study Bible. I was looking at all my resources, and the Archaeological Study Bible has a, just a really nice, brief a review of Leverite marriage. So let's take a look at it. So from the Archaeological Study Bible, the duty as a brother-in-law mentioned here refers to the social and legal oblations of the levir. That's Latin. Okay, so Leverite marriage comes from a Latin word that all of a sudden appears in Judaism and Christianity. So lever basically means husband's brother to marry his widow, sister-in-law, in the event his brother had died and left her childless. And that's exactly what happened. Okay. The otherwise forbidden marriage arrangement secured the inheritance of the deceased husband and perpetuated his name, thus reflecting the common desire among ancient Israelites to maintain a presence in the land after their deaths in the persons of their offspring. So it maintains the husband's name who died, okay, and the inheritance is not going to be dispersed. It's going to stay with the wife through the son, okay? In addition, the son of the brother-in-law, okay, who then has to, you know what I mean. In addition, this arrangement provided social security for the childless widow. This is, this is social security. A very ancient form of social security. Who was effectively helpless and socially disadvantaged in the ancient Near East. Remember, women? Beit Av? Are you kidding? Okay, it's always the sons, always the sons, always the sons. If you recall, we had a, we had a situation. Remember Dina? And we were at Shechem. And there's a statement someplace in there before Shechem, but we know Dina's there, she's a daughter. And it says, um, Jacob crossed the river with all of his children, his sons, and his wife. Where's Dina? You see, I see that she's, she's, a, she's a kid. She's a female goat, okay? I mean, so they weren't really considered... Okay, it's, it's a patriarchal, matri patriarchal society, male-dominated society. Yeah, thank you. So, um, 
In the event the deceased husband had no brothers or if they had declined to fulfill their duty, other relatives might elect to assume the responsibility of the levir. It appears that this regulation was more strictly applied during the patriarchal period than it was several centuries later under the Mosaic law. This is not surprising since Genesis 38 narrates a period in Israel's history when being fruitful and multiply was critical to the nation's existence. Okay, um, And remember, women in childbirth, what's the leading cause of death among women? Childbirth. Okay, So I mean, this is... You, you can see the mental view of the ancients with regards to childbirth and love right marriage and so on. Consequences for a brother-in-law's failure to fulfill his duty in these early days was severe. Tamar in desperation used her father-in-law to provide a legitimate heir. It is possible, now listen to this, it is possible that her culture regarded her act as legal. By analogy, Hittite law stipulated that should the brother of a deceased man also perish, and so be unable to fulfill his duty to the widow, she should marry her late husband's father. Isn't that interesting? So what she did, okay, in that ancient culture seems to be legal. But the thing is, is that we can say for sure the Hittites. And could it be, we don't have any archaeology to prove it, to say that this is also true of the Canaanite culture and the Hebrew culture. The Bible's silent on it. Okay, the Bible does not say, if Onan, then you should, you know, marry Judah. But it's not there. But at least the Hittites have it. So it's a common practice in the ancient Near East. Remember Ruth and Boaz? Love right marriage. And it really comes down to um, the kinsman redeemer. Because there was no... It was Ruth's husband that died, right? I think all the brothers were dead. It yeah. Naomi. It was... Never yeah, anyway, it was a kinsman redeemer. Somebody part of the family was next in line. Whoever that was a kinsman. It's not a not a brother-in-law, but anyway. So as FYI in Judaism, by the way, as an FYI in Judaism today, uh, it's considered not a realistic command, okay, due to a change in culture. I find this interesting, okay? Here's the Torah, and these are the laws of Torah. And then all of us would ask our question here in the 21st century, okay, well, if a girl gets married and her husband dies and the, the husband has a brother, then the brother is... We don't do that, okay? I find it interesting how the Jewish people had said, we honor God's law, we understand what he's doing, but culture has changed. We don't need to do that anymore. We don't operate in the same way. I, I find that interesting. So in other words, love right marriage made sense then, not today. Is that one of the 613 Mosaic laws? Yeah, love right marriage is in the Torah. So it's, it's there. So we'll be taking a look at that because, again, it's practiced in that period, you know, and as the culture changes over time, okay, it becomes less and less even applicable. We'll be dealing with that. Why didn't God say, all of a sudden, slavery is abolished? We'll get to that. He doesn't. But he says, treat your slave better than your son. If you want slaves, go ahead. You can have them but you have to treat them better than you. We'll get to that, okay? That's, that's part of the Torah law. God does it in a very nice, soft way, okay? He's going to get rid of it one way or another. So we end this first part. Just to let you know, Lesson 86 is going to be in multiple parts, probably three, maybe even four parts. So this is end of part one. And we see that Leverite marriage was common 
in the ancient Near East. But once we get to Rabbinic Judaism after 70 AD, remember 70 AD is when the temple is destroyed and everything changes. Judaism changes itself. 70 AD and prior was called Second Temple Judaism, but then after 70 AD, everything changes and it becomes Rabbinic Judaism. And the rabbis say, love right marriage is no longer applicable. Now, in the next lesson, in part two of 86, we'll continue, or we're going to be continuing definitely with the saga of Judah and Tamar. And we're going to get into this love right marriage again we need to address what Onan did. He did not do what was required as per the Leverite laws and rituals. Some say today, matter of fact, it's in the dictionary, um, he did Onanism. And if you take a look at the definition, it's male masturbation. And both the rabbis who made this up, this is their opinion, and it transferred into the Catholic Church that this idea of what Onan did was masturbation. And this is a terrible, terrible, grave sin. In Judaism, Onanism, or what Onan did, from the rabbi's point of view, is as grave as a sin as murdering someone, as burning your son or your daughter in the fires, offering them up to a pagan god. In the Catholic Church, it's called a mortal sin. You can go directly and burn in hell for it. And again, in the Catholic Church, it was equivalent to murder or adultery. But is that what's going on? Is that really what happened? We're going to need to address this. And we're going to find, again, that the opinion of the Orthodox rabbis, which transferred into the Church conflicts with the real context of the Bible and the words of the Bible. Now in the rest of part two, we're going to begin to see what the saga of Judah and Tamar perhaps really is getting at. Dr. John Creed, in his Torah commentary, on Genesis, which is another amazing Torah commentary, has several comments on what possibly is going on in this saga of Judah and Tamar. He says, Thus we see that out of all the plans and acts of man, God brings about his good and just purposes. It is through Judah and his relationship with his daughter Tamar, his daughter-in-law Tamar, that God brings to Israel its greatest earthly king, David, and its only divine king, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Despite mankind's wickedness, God, God's promise to Abraham will come to map, come to pass. And we see that Tamar is listed as an ancestor of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Is this not how God uses his people in all ages? In terms of the fact that Joseph was saying in Genesis 50, 
He says to his brothers, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. For am I not in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. This biblical principle applies even to the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. As some of the disciples commented in Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This was all planned and engineered by God. And Dr. Creed ends by saying, even the evil deeds of these men were used by God to bring about victory through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it seems as if, even though the Bible is silent, that Yahweh, Adonai, it's teaching us of himself. Joseph's life from birth was part of God's plan. He was engineering Joseph's life. Joseph may have been immature and foolish at 17. We see him as a man, though, in Egypt. He became a man who was mature, talented, and he walked with God. God seems to be saying this is part of his plan to save the world and Israel, in other words, Jacob and his family, from starvation and death. And in the saga of Judah and Tamar, we see the orchestration of the heavenly conductor, our Father, our God, controlling and planning historical events for the Messiah to come from David, who came from Judah and Tamar. The saga of Joseph and this bunny trail of the saga, saga of Judah and Tamar are all intimately related. We see God, the Lord, orchestrating Joseph's life to save the world by the bread from earth and God is saying, this is similar, because behind all this, I am orchestrating also the coming of Messiah Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, to be born in Bethlehem as a descendant of David to save the world in himself as the bread from heaven. So I will see you in part two as we continue the saga of Judah and Tamar. And we'll remember in Luke 24:50 that Jesus lifted up his hands to bless his 120 disciples before he ascended the Father, just like the high priest daily lifts up his hands. It could very well be that Jesus blessed them with the ironic blessing. I've taken the ironic blessing and I've turned it into a prayer. I'd like to end our session with that blessing, that blessing that's based upon the high priestly blessing that God gave to Moses to Aaron to bless the people. Yevarekeinu Adonai Vishmarkeinu Yair Adonai Panava Aleinu Bekunekeinu Yisa Adonai Panava Aleinu Viasem Lanu Shalom Vishem Yeshua Adonainu Amen. So together, let's say this in English. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us and may he give us his shalom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.